0: Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
1: And I'm Joe Jordan.
0: And today on the program, offshore oil drilling and efforts to prevent it. We speak with Dan Hayfley, director of O'Neill Sea Odyssey, and one of the architects of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, and also with John Laird, Secretary of Natural Resources for the State of California. The president's efforts to open large swaths of the coastline of the United States to oil drilling has drawn sharp criticism from all sides, but will that criticism be enough to stop? oil companies from jumping into coastal waters. We'll find out a lot more about that shortly.
1: We have a new podcast. You can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com And if you want to get in touch with us today, uh, or ask our guests a question, write to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com That's an email address. radioplanetwatch at gmail.com
0: but first we uh, want to go take a look at some of the main stories in science this week and to start us off here's a story from Carla Ramirez about sea otters and why saving them means saving the whole marine ecosystem.
2: It's 3 p.m. and it's feeding time for the sea otters here at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. As you can hear the crowd is super excited to see these cute bear-looking creatures. Sea otters used to have a fairly large population, but when the fur trade was in demand, that number decreased dramatically. At one point, scientists believed there were over a million otters. Today, there are about 3,000 otters in California and about 106,000 worldwide. Otters make more of an impact on the environment than people know. Otters are keystone species who maintain the balance of the nearshore kelp ecosystems. Ning Tao is a bilingual program specialist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium.
3: Yeah, so uh, here at the aquarium, I basically write a lot of the educational programs. I also happen to do it in um, Spanish and English. Uh, A lot of the presentations as well. So any uh, public programs that you're seeing us uh, do education for the public, that's basically uh, my entire job.
2: Many people come from all over just to see the Monterey Bay Aquarium. The Sea Otter Exhibit is one of the most popular ones at the aquarium. People seem to be so intrigued by the otters, but little do they know that the otters play a role in our environment.
3: Sea otters are super important because they're what we call a keystone species and that means that basically the ecosystem they live in, there's lots of different keystone species, but uh, sea otters are keystone species for the kelp forest, the ecosystem that they live in. It basically means that the kelp forest cannot exist without sea otters, so they're important for the kelp forest's existence and uh, thereby a lot of species that live inside the kelp forest. Keystone species, that means that they The the entire rich biodiversity
4: that you see off the coast of this aquarium here, they are like the kingpin. If if they're
1: gone, nothing works. If they're there, everything works.
2: Here at the kelp forest exhibit, we have these beautiful long strands of kelp that can grow up to 18 inches per day. At the aquarium, you can see kelp all over the exhibits. They look like oversized brown seaweed. Kelp are underwater ecosystems that usually grow in shallow water and are extremely large brown algae. They provide a unique dimensional habitat for marine organisms. Sea otters help maintain the kelp since otters prey on the sea urchins, which prey on kelp.
4: Did They thought to
1: extinction, everybody left, and it turned out there were about 30 left hiding out down by Big Sur and that population was discovered and protected and nurtured and now
5: there's over 3,000 in this immediate area and because of that the kelp forests have returned and along with that all the biodiversity that comes with that.
2: Sea otters help keep the sea urchins under control which helps the kelp continue to grow and provide a habitat for hundreds of species. Being a keystone species, they keep everything in balance. The people I spoke to at the aquarium gave me a little bit of advice on what we can do to help save the otters.
3: Boats, human traffic, just not going too close to them when you're out kayaking, everything from pollution in the kelp forest as well, as, um, as well as supporting organizations that do help with rehabilitation and firsthand work with
4: plastic bags, not using a plastic straw, things that end up getting into the ocean and become you know, mistaken for food.
2: Although the sea otters seem to be doing okay currently, we still have a long way to go. These water mammals help out our environment, and we should help keep them alive. Thanks for tuning in. Happy holidays.
0: And that was Carla. And now we have a story about sea lions from Maya uh, Rodriguez. According to a report recently published by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, this California sea lion's The California sea lion population has made a strong comeback over the past few decades. Back in the 1970s, the sea lion population was significantly depleted, dropping below 90,000, mainly due to hunting and pollution. But thanks to the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the population has slowly but steadily recovered. The population now hovers between 250,000 to 300,000, around three times more than what we saw back in the 70s. The report shows that sea lions are very sensitive to changes in the environment, making them a strong reference point to detect coming changes in the marine ecosystems. And another story as was the case with the last 2 years, 2017 was one of the hottest years on record since scientists started recording global temperatures in 1880. The 6 hottest years have all occurred since 2010 and 17 of the 18 hottest years on record have occurred since 2001. NOAA researchers say the findings show a continuing long-term trend in warming the planet. Scientists believe that if we are to avert the worst effects of global warming, we must immediately to limit the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And now, Sanaya Laktawala has a story for you about some Miami research.
2: University of Miami researcher Kenneth Feely has found new evidence to suggest that rising global temperatures could have a disastrous impact on agriculture and local economies that rely on it. The research was conducted in the rural Andes in Peru, where most farming is done at high elevations. The simulation revealed that, with the temperature increase of 1.3 to 2.6 degrees, nearly all of the corn and potato plants were killed by invading birds and insects. This potential crop failure could span many many of South America and Asia's rural farming communities that don't have the technology or market access to adapt to climate change, and could even produce famine-like situations in remote areas that rely on local agriculture to survive.
0: And Tommy Martin has a story for you about uh, some nuclear power systems that are going to power us beyond this planet.
1: Yeah, NASA successfully tested a compact nuclear power system this week designed to support a human mission to the surface of Mars. The system, produced under the Kilopower project, uses a uranium reactor core roughly the size of a paper towel roll. With each system producing between 1 and 10 kilowatts of power, a human, mission, a human mission would require multiple systems to support life. The technology could power habitats, mine and process resources and power probes into the outer reaches of our solar system. In March, a 20 hour full power test is scheduled to assess the system's functionality.
0: And thank you for those stories. We will um, join Dan Hafley in just a moment. He is our guest in studio. And we're very happy to have him on board talking about a difficult issue that seems to have come around after 30 years, the efforts to drill off the United States coastline. And we'll be talking about the potential environmental impacts of those proposals and efforts to stymie them by environmental groups and others concerned about the marine ecosystems in the United States.
1: Yeah, that's not the only monster that's rearing its head again, I actually knew Dan way back in the early 80s in connection with an organization called the Nuclear Freeze, which was to address the really scary at that time, especially threat. You know, Reagan had just come into power in the U.S. Uh, nuclear war and nuclear weapons. And, well, you know, they're back. Uh, so that's an, another issue for another time. But by the way, uh, Rachel's story there about the inexorably rising temperatures uh, puts the lie to the thing called the pause, which has been this thing that the right wing and And so-called climate skeptics keep resurrecting, saying, oh, global warming has stopped or has significantly paused. Well, (laughs) they got nothing now, unfortunately. All right. So go ahead and welcome Dan. And Rachel's going to tell us all about your background.
0: Well, I won't tell everybody everything because we'd be here for the rest of the show. (laughs) Because Dan has a long and illustrious career um, in many different fields, um, including marine conservation, And Dan worked for um, some state politicians as the, uh, I believe, the district director for Henry Mello, who was our state senator. And he's also been very involved in the creation of the National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of California, which is one of the largest, I believe, in the country. Uh, That was a major victory. It did prevent offshore oil drilling. He has also been deeply involved in efforts to try to make permanent uh, bans on oil drilling off the coast. And he is now executive director of O'Neill Sea Odyssey, a program which brings underserved children out into the ocean to help them learn about science. So he is teaching the next generation conservation principles, but he is still very deeply involved to this day with this effort to try to both educate and advocate for protecting our pristine marine environments. So welcome, Dan.
5: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say, just in the last uh, five or six minutes, I've listened to these stories that incredible young people here have have shared. And I learned a lot in the last, more in the last six minutes than I've learned in the last week. So thank you for your, for your efforts.
0: <laughs> and just uh, want to mention, these students that you're hearing, many of them are from my uh, program at Cabrillo College to teach broadcast writing. So Maya and Tommy are both students and Sanaya, who knows, might be, but you go, she goes to another local college. So we're very lucky to have interns uh, doing programming for you on Planet Watch. The next generation yeah. is probably going to be the ones to both solve these problems and perhaps experience more of the brunt of them. So it's great they're getting themselves educated and educating others Absolutely, about these issues. Yeah. True. So where are we at? We had this proposal by the Trump administration to roll back... All kinds of bans on offshore oil drilling. What is it, first of all, and, and how big of a threat is it is this effort?
5: Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit complicated and there's a little bit of history involved, but uh, you mentioned marine sanctuary, So we have the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Central California. And Monterey Bay is really a misnomer because this sanctuary actually starts at the bottom of Big Sur, Cambria, which is south, uh, northern San Luis Obispo County and extends north to southern Marin County. So it's 276 miles of coastline. Uh, 6,000 square nautical miles. It also includes something called the Davidson Seamount, which is about um, 175 miles west of Cambria. It's an undersea mountain as the name would suggest, and it's a wonderful uh, garden, coral garden, uh, has incredible upwelling there, a whole environment there, and this was added in 2009, was the sanctuary itself was established in 1992. It's not contiguous. Davidson Seamount is further offshore, but worthy of protection. We also have um, three other sanctuaries off California. The Channel Islands off Southern California have a marine sanctuary around them. The islands themselves being a national park, And then if you head north, uh, you go to the the northern boundary of the Monterey Bay Sanctuary I just described. You have the beginnings of the Greater Farallones National Marine Sanctuary. And then next to it, to the west, further offshore, is the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Cordell Bank is an undersea mountain as well. It's a granite structure. It has incredible upwelling and marine life in that area and the Greater Farallones itself being an incredible resource and uh, Originally, it surrounded the uh, Gulf of the Farallones Islands out there uh, that have an incredible rich uh, array of seabirds So most of these sanctuaries were established by the ones off California and then there's one off Washington State We're all established by Congress because they blocked offshore oil and in those days was felt that Congress could only do that blocking offshore oil because oil, offshore oil and from federal waters is a major source of revenue. At one point it was the second largest source of revenue after income taxes. <laughs> <clears throat> so in the last um, 10 years or so, a number of structures have been added to these sanctuaries. The Greater Farallon Sanctuary, doubled in size. It used to be called Gulf of the Farallones. It doubled in size. Cordell Bank Sanctuary doubled in size. Uh, protecting areas off Mendocino, part of Mendocino County, all of Sonoma County from oil development, much to the relief of people up there. We added the Davidson Seam out in 2009 here in Monterey Bay, and then um, the Channel Islands had some acreage, about 9,000 acres added to it as well. So, in April 28th, 2009, Seventeen. President Trump uh, signed an executive order, which did many things. But two of those things were, number one, review those new areas added to marine sanctuaries and some marine national monuments, which uh, is another category of marine protection. Look at those areas that were added in the last 10 years by executive order with an eye to repealing them if they conflict with offshore oil and gas development. The second thing that he did that we'll be talking about today is we're going to take the current five-year offshore oil plan in federal waters around the country, which spared California, Washington, Oregon, all of the East Coast, Maine, North Carolina, Florida. um, Those areas were spared. He wanted to repeal that plan and replace it with a new five-year plan. And he instructed the interior department to look at look for oil. He wanted to have energy independence and, and drill for more oil in federal waters, which are generally three to 200 miles offshore. Now, so these two things are coming at us. The review of marine sanctuaries is done. We don't know the results of that. That's been secret. And there have been no leaks about that. None of us have heard about what's in that report. Offshore oil, Well, we just heard two weeks ago about that plan, which is basically opening up 90% of federal waters around the U.S. West Coast, East Coast, Gulf of Mexico, Alaska, all of it, uh, open for development. Now, it's a general plan. um, So over time, over the next year, they're going to winnow this down according to areas that the oil industry is interested in drilling. Areas where they can drill, and then they're also taking public comment. In fact, public comment is happening right now. It, public comment opened about a week and a half ago. I just looked at the website. There are 7,700 comments
0: well, so far, yeah, which is great. That's a lot. And and I will say, too, that um, the other little weird twist in this story is that Zinke, the Interior Secretary, met with the uh, governor of Florida and suddenly, Florida was off limits to drilling. Yes, and this yeah. seems incredibly capricious, especially because Mar-a-Lago happens to be in Florida. It seemed like a political decision, nothing to do with the environment um, because the same exact right. uh, issues apply to Florida, apply to California, Oregon, Washington, and most of the coastline. That They do rely on clean beaches right. and tourism. And just to tell you a really quick personal story, when I was about 10, we went on a class field trip to Bolinas, And we happened to be on the beach when a major oil spill happened. And we um, were beset by dying birds covered in black, thick, gooey oil and people running around with bales of hay trying to wipe them off with rags with turpentine on them. And and most of the birds were dying and going back out to sea and dying around us. And it made huge impression on me. It it was horrifying and sad and and also electrifying because we were right there and we started to help. All the kids jumped in. We got covered in oil and we also felt personally how awful it is to walk on black crude and get it on yourself. I mean, imagine this gooey black tar Mm -hmm. all over you. And this is what happened in California as well. A little south there in a much bigger spill in Santa Barbara. And that really galvanized this whole movement. Yeah, yeah. So,
5: it really did. These
0: personal experiences—you know—we don't want to wait to have them to make these yeah. laws, and that's why California is fiercely fighting back. And I wanted to ask you t- to tell me some of the ways—not um, only yeah. California, since we reach other parts of the United States with this show—but but, but California has been a very fierce fighter in this right. battle. What is the state doing? What is Governor Brown doing? And John Laird will be on in a moment telling us about more the Governor Brown side, but tell us from the advocacy and Marine Sanctuary side, what's being
5: done. And there's a lot of tools uh, to to fight back. But first of all, um, I was telling the story of two different um, things that were going on. And we really, until we see if any sanctuary protections off California are repealed. And I mentioned there's a sanctuary off Washington state that, that actually doesn't have any executive order expansion, so that's going to remain intact. That can't be undone except by Congress. And then you have some cases like this on the East Coast as well. And, of course, Florida has its own large marine sanctuary, which took several sanctuaries and wrapped them into it around the Everglades, and uh, that protects a a number of um, square miles there. But when we get this, when we're able to see the results of this report on marine sanctuaries and what's being repealed, we really won't know what the extent of the damage could be to California. Uh, And when I mentioned that, again, I mentioned Sonoma County could be at risk, part of Mendocino County could be at risk. Today, so the Monterey Bay Sanctuary was established in 1992 and back then oil drilling could not be done in 3000 square feet, 3000 feet deep of water. But today it can. And so to the west of our sanctuary, you actually have waters that deep where drilling could occur. I doubt there's any oil out there. Um, so we'll really see the extent of what could be done in California. What can you do? Well, first of all, I mentioned the public comments site. So one thing you can do immediately, and it's really easy, it's very transparent, is you can get on your, your phone or your laptop or whatever device you have and go to regulations.gov. So it's regulations.gov. And then you search BOEM, which is Bureau of Offshore Energy Management. And then 2017, last year, and 0074. And that's gonna get you to a link. Just click on that link and you'll see a page. It says, comment now and it'll tell you about this five-year plan for offshore oil and gas. I'm looking at it right now. It's, yeah, it's regulations.gov, BOEM, 2017, 0074. 7,700 comments been received. So you can see everybody's comments there.
0: And we are going to have Tommy put it up on our Facebook page on Planet Watch Radio. And if you're just joining us, this is Planet Watch Radio. We're talking with Dan Haefeli, director of O'Neill Sea Odyssey and one of the architects of some laws, which we're gonna talk about next, that actually may be our ace in the hole so yeah. There's local ordinances that turn out might be yeah. the wrench in the works. So and we want to make sure. You can email
1: them. us by the way at RadioPlanetWatch at yeah. gmail.com. Right. right. Like we, have, right yeah. we have
0: Dan for the next 15 minutes. So if you have a question, now would be a good time to lob it at us through our email or Facebook page. There are
5: also public meetings that are going to be coming up on this on this plan. So on the East Coast it's on that website that I mentioned uh, in the Gulf area. In California there'll be a meeting February 8th in Sacramento in the afternoon. It'll be pre by a 2 p.m. rally by the Center for Biological Diversity right outside. It's a library in downtown Sacramento. I expect that meeting to be packed. I know that Save Our Shores here in Santa Cruz is having a rally on the beach, Kell Beach, on February 3rd. Uh, it starts with a march uh, at 10 a.m., uh, or the gather at 10 March at 11 from Lighthouse Point down to the beach. Um, so in terms of actual things, Things to do, this comment period is very important because people can submit comments. And if you're an expert in any of these areas, please comment. If you're not an expert, please comment. It doesn't matter. But if you do get a hold of some information or like the story that Rachel just told, um, that's a good story to tell in this public comment period. Now, the state of California has several tools first of all the california coastal commission which governs land use california stretch of coastline has something called federal consistency determination so for the federal government to do offshore drilling or any other activity in federal waters three to 200 miles offshore it has to be in alignment and compatible with state activities in the coastal zone and in the ocean as well. So the Coastal Commission is in charge of what's called that consistency uh, certification. So they have that tool. They actually get to review these platforms, these proposed oil development uh, proposals uh, with that in mind. And they've done that. They did that with Platform Irene, the latest platform that was set up off uh, Santa Maria and federal waters. The other thing is the State Lands Commission, which consists, I believe, of the governor, lieutenant governor, controller, and some other elected officials. They have the authority in state waters, which is the mean high tide line out to three miles. If you put anything on the, the bottom of state waters, for example, a pipeline, a wharf that you construct there or anything else that requires being tethered they have approval over that and then rachel mentioned the local ordinances back when i worked for save our shores in the late 80s and early 90s um, i went up and down the state my little pinto and convinced local governments to pass ordinances and this was the brainchild of john laird and marty worm gary patton some local elected officials Uh, Convince them to pass ordinances that would require any onshore facilities to support offshore oil be subject to a vote of the people. Except in San Francisco, where because of city charter, they just limit it to industrial areas. So we got 26 of these laws passed. So the area from the top of Humboldt County down to San Luis Obispo County and then Southern California communities, including all of San Diego County, have these ordinances in place. The courts, so the oil industry took these ordinances to court, as you can imagine, and the courts sided with the local governments because it's local land use. The oil companies said, hey, oil is a federal commercial activity. The locals said, well, but if you build a steel plant, steals a federal activity, you still have to, you know, have local ordinances in place for building the plant and and the court sided with that. So that's another tool that we have.
0: Does that mean um, that if you have an oil platform off the coast, God forbid, of Santa Cruz, you couldn't run it if you didn't have stuff on shore to support it? Is that really Mm. like a nix on these platforms going in because there's nothing allowed on land or can they run them around us somehow?
5: This actually happened in Santa Barbara and what happened is Santa Barbara County did not approve an onshore facility for a new oil platform so the oil company retaliated by putting a floating facility on the ocean just outside of state waters Mm -hmm. out there and it didn't work too well as I understand it because it's rough waters and Mm -hmm. the waters are much rougher up here but Theoretically, they could they could do other things. Um, just because it's subject to a vote of the people doesn't mean the vote of, the people will vote no.
0: Well, but in California, we have a pretty strong history of not over my dead body will you drill off our coast. Yeah. So I can't yeah. imagine the people going, "Yay, a big oil facility! Bring yeah. it on!" Yeah. Uh, at least not in this part of California. Uh, it's possible in more impoverished counties of the north coast. It you know there are people who look in pretty desperate for jobs right now, so it's not a guarantee, You're right?
5: Well, when I went around the local communities back in the 80s and 90s, there were some people in some communities who said, you know, we want to be open to this because, you know, fishing is, is going downhill in terms of economic activity and tourism's not doing so well and Timbers, I mean, some of the traditional mainstays um, were disappearing, so this, was, yeah. they wanted to consider this as an option.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking with Dan Haefely. Uh He is here talking about the efforts to drill off the United States offshore waters and what the costs of that might be to communities if there should be an oil spill. We- are kind of surprised or i was still surprised i guess nothing should surprise me these days that the governors of the states that were the hardest hit by the bp oil spill they were just you know their beaches were devastated their environment is still suffering um that spill is still having repercussions to the environment and the economy they
1: want more they those want more.
0: governors are for offshore oil drilling now. Uh, the politics must be that that's where they get their money, I assume. But
1: we the- know, a bigger discussion, but we can at least mention it here, is alternatives to both the oil for transportation energy and, you know, for jobs. There's yeah. got to be better things, other things humans can do <laughs> for yeah. gainful employment and other better ways to get our energy for uh, transportation. Well, I mean, Joe, I mean, you've been a leader in
5: area of solar development. I know my son is in Australia right now working on that in that very industry. It's something that you pioneered. But uh, in terms of transportation, you mentioned the the means by which you got here today, uh, which is, you know, a Volt. And you didn't bolt, use... A Bolt. A B. Bolt. B-O-L-T. I'm sorry. <laughs> all electric. <laughs> not yeah. All hybrid. electric. Not a hybrid. <laughs> not a hybrid. So, you, you know, we... California is really a leader in the effort to reduce our carbon emissions, our carbon footprint. And California also is the third largest producer of oil in the country, by the way. Uh, If you look off Huntington Beach, we have oil development. We have offshore oil development starting Huntington Beach going north to Seal Beach, Long Beach, and then Santa Barbara Channel, Santa Maria. But at the same time, I mean, we're a populous state between 30 and 40 million people. We're leading the way. Governor Brown and Secretary of Resources John Laird, who you'll be uh, hearing from in a minute, uh, in terms of reducing our... Uh, the dependence on oil, if you will. So that's the pathway we have to take.
0: It indeed is. And, you know, there have been political observers saying, you know, it'll never happen. Don't worry. All the laws are going to protect us. The judges are going to protect us. We can relax because it just can't happen here. Is that your take on things, Dan?
5: Uh, Well, actually, I will argue that the laws... Um, the laws should protect us because I'll tell you that the Monterey Bay Sanctuary is a web of laws: Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act, a variety of laws. So I argue that a rational person looking at this is say, "Yep, that looks pretty s- s- tight and solid." But we're di- we're in a different time now, so. We can't just relax, so we do have to speak up. I mean, we have to speak up using science. We have to speak up using facts, but we do have to speak up. So the laws are there, and they're good, but the
1: laws themselves and the rationale behind them have to be defended. Judges, I mean, judges come into the picture big time at some point with all these laws. Yes. And we got different judges now from the ones who ruled in favor of the local <laughs> Uh, communities before. And uh, what what can people do? I mean, judges are kind of a hard lot to get at. What do we... (laughs) Think about them. Well, you know, in lo- and locally judges are elected. Federally,
5: uh, judges are appointed, of course, and then state level—that's um, a different, you know, a different set. Uh, with the local laws that you just referred to, that I talked about earlier, that was uh, federal judge Consuela Marshall, who was appointed by Jimmy Carter, and a lot of work went into the filings that were prepared for her, and she's a great intellectual, and she looked at those arguments very strongly. So, I'm a big believer in strong arguments. So what do you do about judges? You come and you make very tight arguments and we actually have a lot there. There's a rich web Of laws that were passed uh, under a Republican president. Richard Nixon signed a lot of environmental laws. The Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the the act that created National Marine Sanctuaries, among other things, he created the EPA. And there's a great network of of science behind these laws. So you can really reach in and use those. And the same is true in the public sector in terms of of making comments to elected officials. It's the same thing. So... um, uh, I mean, maybe I'm sounding naive. I think there's a the political dra- backdrop to this, and I'll just say that um, you know, Theodore Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, but he you know used the Antiquities Act to um, create national parks and national monuments, and you know there is a bipartisan history of of um, of environmental uh, protection, and I have a lot of friends who are Republicans who are very strong environmentalists. So I think we can appeal to everybody. Everybody loves the ocean. Everybody loves this planet. And you can appeal to people for every person there's an experience they've had in their background. I mean, if it's seeing that bald eagle, if it's seeing the deer outside the back of their house or that experience going to a national park or surfing, whatever it is, that we can appeal
1: to something there. Yeah, I actually was talking to Tommy on the way over about how, well, okay, uh, he said that uh, Dan or somebody had announced that there's going to be a March for the Ocean and I'm thinking, well, uh, are Nebraskans going to be out marching in the streets for oceans? And then I thought, well, you know what? Everybody likes to come to the seashore, to the coastline, to the beach. You know, so this is an inter- it's world-class scenery, and we're not trying to just keep it all to ourselves. We want to share it and preserve it for all the world. Vicky <laughs>
5: Vicky Nichols was my successor as executive director Save Our Shore. She's now running something called the Colorado Ocean Coalition. Mm, cool. Nice.
0: <laughs> and it's true that you know that a large portion of California's economy and really Washington State, Oregon and all of those coastal, North Carolina, the Outer Banks, those all rely heavily in terms of their economy on tourism. So if you just want to make an economic argument against uh, massive drilling off these coasts, people don't pay a lot of money to go sit on the beach and look at oil derricks. They just don't do that. You know, that.
1: it would be interesting would be, uh, and there probably are there's f- film footage, I'm sure, uh, and stories about that 1969, I think it was, big mm-hmm. oil spill off Santa Barbara. Uh, I was in Virginia at the time, but I actually would be very interested in hearing some gory details uh, of what all actually happened and help, you know... We- got to get that out there into people's consciousness so that we know what we're up against and what to fight tooth and nail yeah. against.
5: Yeah, that was really the first time that, I mean, that was the first environmental disaster that people saw on television. I mean, they heard about the fire in Ohio on the river, but this is something they saw on television. And really, I remember I was very young at the time. I was growing up in Southern California, and I, and we would go to Santa Barbara, and we saw this on television. I thought just heartbreaking. And then, of course, more recently, the Deepwater Horizon spill. We all saw the cam of, you know, the uncontrolled gushing of oil coming out of the, the where the drill bit met the um, the seafloor. Um, so there's the the details are there, the visuals are there. We just need to see it. but We also need to realize. You know, there is, there is a delicate balance, um, very much like the, the case of sea otters we heard earlier. It's a delicate balance there, and it's easy to disrupt that, and this is definitely a way that that can be disrupted.
0: And it's, it really puts the lie, that especially the BP story, that, um, you know, we've learned how to do this safely and it'll never happen. You know, we'll never have another accident. You hear a lot of reassurances from the oil companies that they figured it out, you know, technology is fail safe now. And um, there was a lot of finger pointing and lawsuits about who was really to blame, but, you know, human error and fallibility and greed do uh, intersect in these companies to create something like the BP spill that we saw that, um, I don't know that you can necessarily learn your lesson and prevent it from ever happening again, and you can't guarantee it. So yeah. the question really re- goes, you know, <coughs> so we power our country for a year with that oil that we got for such a high cost, but there's no more sea otters. You know, is that worth driving around for a year for our country? As you say, there's alternatives um, out there so we hope that we'll embrace that and prevent the need for the oil and maybe I've also heard economic arguments that say the price of oil is just not high enough for most of these companies to want to drill that it's coming from a political place not demands necessarily from these companies is that what you've also heard
5: yeah, yeah well basically the federal government drives uh, the areas that become available so these are nine mer- square mile tracks and federal waters, shooted 200 miles offshore so it's up to the federal government to make them available in the first place and the same argument's been made Made about certain national monuments. And then the, what the argument is that they would leave this option on the table if the price of oil is there uh, and the, it's opportune for, for the investment to be made because the, uh, these are investments and they're big investments. Um, I would um, just want to say that the oil industry, when the Marine Sanctuaries Review was begun, they declined to comment and get involved in that. They said, well, these areas are, you know, we're just not interested.
0: Interesting. Well, Dan, I really want to thank you for coming in and sharing all this with us. And I hope to check back in with you in, you know, a couple of months and see what's happened with this story. I'm sure it's an evolving one. I hope that the public listening will pay close attention. There's a lot coming at us, but this one uh, is not one we sounds like we want to sit out. We've got to get involved.
1: Yeah. And Dan, it doesn't sound like you're getting tired of all this environmental activism. <laughs> uh, I mean, it keeps that, coming that is back. A, that is a real danger, but uh, you're inspiring and inspired clearly, and hopefully our listeners will be also. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate sure. that. Yeah. And
5: I, again, I really appreciate being around this
1: table of you know,
5: many generations and the future is here. So thank you.
0: Thanks for being here. And now we're going to hear from someone we're quite familiar with here on the Central Coast, but maybe our listeners from other parts of the country are not. He is Natural Resources Secretary under Governor Brown, John Laird. Let's listen to an interview I did with him. I'm speaking with John Laird. He is Secretary of Natural Resources for the state of California. And, John, thank you for being with us here on Planet Watch.
4: It's my pleasure.
0: Well, you probably know why I'm calling. Um, There has been an attempt to open up the coastlines um, of not just California, but Oregon, Washington, and the East Coast to oil drilling. And that is a a special request by the president to do that. And I was wondering what um, the state of California's response has been and will be in light of these new efforts.
4: Well, the state of California <clears throat> excuse me, the state of California is strongly opposed to uh opening up the coastal waters for this. There's been a thirty year historic position of that, and uh we have acted in unison with uh Washington and Oregon, so there's a united front of the states on the the west coast and There's so many different issues at the heart of it. Obviously, uh, the spill in the late 1960s shows exactly the catastrophic damage that can happen. But it also comes at a time when California is taking the lead among many states and and actually many subnationals and nations in the world. In trying to move away from fossil fuels, and it is sort of driving a stake in the ground the other way. And so there's many reasons why as a, on a policy level we don't think it's a good idea.
0: So um, we heard recently that um, Interior Secretary Zinke went to Florida and came back um, taking Florida off the table. Um, And once they said that tourism would be impacted, is that expected to happen state by state with the states who severely oppose drilling like California does?
4: Uh, Well, I think that was a political statement on the Trump administration to... Take Florida out. And I don't think they understood what they were getting into because some of the exact same conditions they said they were responding to in Florida do exist in many other states and they certainly exist in California. And as a result, uh, our governor actually followed up and asked for a phone call. Uh, with the Secretary of Interior, and he had one. And he noted uh, broad bipartisan opposition uh, in California to this, the 30 years of agreement between the state and the federal government on the issue. Uh, that it goes against California's commitment to reduce our dependence on on fossil fuels. And in fact, he invited Secretary Zinke to come to California to continue the conversation, and the secretary indicated that he would do that. So um, the, the action that they took in Florida left an opening for us to, to follow up in California.
0: And are you assuming, I'm not sure you're in touch with your counterparts in Oregon and Washington, but are we assuming the same conversations are happening between those states and the federal government?
4: I actually just in the the standard press read that uh, the governors of uh, Washington and Oregon had had similar conversations. So it is happening up and down the coast.
0: I've read some analysis that said there's so many laws in place, and especially in California, that would prevent this from happening that maybe we should relax and not worry about it. Yet there's rallies planned, I think, February 3rd up in the Capitol and here in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Well, um Tell us your assessment. Nobody can predict the future, of course, but what laws would make this more difficult for this to happen in California?
4: Well, I think it's really uh, an absolute congressional moratorium would be the thing that that would be the most significant because it would override everything else. But we have a history on the Central Coast, and I was in the middle of it in the mid-1980s, and late-1980s, um, of enacting things at the local level, and as strange as that sounds, it's there was a ballot measure run in the Santa Cruz City election in 1985, and it was that you could not have a zoning change for onshore support facilities without a vote of the people, and the one constitutional right that is usually fairly protected for cities and counties is the the right to zone and that measure um, allowed us to educate other cities and counties how to do the same thing i was on the city council at the time we hired save our shores dan hafley was the executive director he's still around with o'neill sea odyssey and we worked to where we had a uh, I believe by the time we were done, 27 ordinances of cities and counties uh, adopted. We won the right to do that in federal court uh, when the oil companies attacked. And um, I think every single one of those ordinances <clears throat> excuse me, is still on the books. And so right now, uh, even at the local level, there are things. But it... Uh, This is one of those things that no matter how bad it is and how it doesn't make sense and how the whole direction of uh, the environment and climate policy is going the other way, You never feel like you can exactly drive a stake through the heart of it. And so I really think you take nothing for granted. You pursue it at every level. I know the Attorney General uh, of California has an op-ed in the New York Times today in opposition to it. The governor is working it at the federal level. Uh, We have the local ordinances. That's what we need to do, and many times... Uh, people get complacent. They think, oh, it hasn't happened in 30 years. Oh, this can't happen. Oh, it takes too long, so let's relax. But exactly the kind of rallies you mentioned or the public demonstrations and the calling people's attention to it are what is really necessary right now to make sure it's front and center for everyone, and we do whatever it takes to keep it
0: from happening. So let's um, maybe reiterate some of the environmental arguments that would be made to prevent offshore drilling. We have an endangered species, the sea otter, that might completely go away if a major spill like the BP oil spill happened. Are there other... Um, arguments that are made. I mean, that's a pretty compelling one, all by itself. But you know, there there may be others as well. Um, that you make. Endangered
4: species. It, it is what endangered one species actually endangers many other species and the entire ecosystem. So if you have a, a major spill, and we have had some minor spills even since I've been resources secretary, the the pipe rupture in Santa Barbara that put uh, oil. Uh, onto the beach and into the water there was was very significant and it, it is hard to turn around some of the impacts that that uh, happen one of the the bigger ones in the environmental issue issue arena is really climate because over time <clears throat> we have to divert from our use of fossil fuels and the governor Uh, set goals uh, here early in his administration uh, by, if I'm going to remember them all with perfection, I think it's uh, uh, 33% by 2020 in a renewable portfolio, uh, renewable energy portfolio, and that's now at 50% of trying to transition people off of um, fossil fuel cars over time, of doubling the efficiency of the buildings we have, of trying to do carbon capture through natural lands and preservation of natural lands, Um, through those kinds of things, uh... You actually really obviate the need for these. And I think the other environmental issue is that uh, the federal administration is treating these leases as if all things are equal. If you look at the Gulf Coast... It's relatively shallow, it's it's a rather gradient of underground water, and if you look at the Pacific, uh, there are dramatic drop-offs of, uh, of uh, the seafloor level, and it just means that all things aren't equal in the safety in doing that kind of offshore drilling. And so, you know, there are just many different environmental issues.
0: Not to mention uh, economic issues. When you look at the impact of tourism on our economy, it's one of the major pillars. People come here for our beautiful beaches not to step on globs of oil. <laughs> so
4: that's a big Well, one. exactly, and that was the argument that was made by Florida. So they responded to the economic tourism ardu- uh, argument in Florida, which is uh, or- why we need to make it very strongly in California.
0: Um, I wanted to, before I let you go, ask you a couple more broad questions about Jerry Brown's approach to the current environment in Washington, D.C. He has really, you know, become the leader (laughs) of the free world here in California, you know, pushing back against the climate change rollbacks and a number of other things and going to China to make deals. What uh, will we look for in this particular fight uh, from the governor himself?
4: I think that he has staked out the ground. He is already talking to uh, other governors, and it's a question of what kind of alliance gets made over time. And it's a question of how this issue proceeds, whether they have any measure of success. Because, to be honest, when they rolled it out... Uh, There was no specificity. Normally, when we were fighting these things in the early 1980s, they had specific tracts of land. They were generally numbered or measured, and it was like, this is what was going to be up for lease. It was just off the coast, and it wasn't delineated, and if you were going to move to an actual leasing process, it wasn't even specifying uh, uh, with any clarity what the land was. So... It's tough to fight a proposal that they haven't even been clear about making, and I can't tell whether it's their level of understanding. But if you look, given your question, at what he's done on other climate things, uh, he has really set goals and then worked with other governments or subnationals to join us in agreements against the goals, whether the so called under two agreement to to hold the emissions under two and signing them with states and provinces and and people, whether linking our cap and trade system with Ontario or Quebec because they're the ones that that wish to do it or where I've been a point on ocean acidification, which is more resilience than emissions. But uh, we have gone around and has signed an international alliance with agreements that includes Emirates, Iceland, Pacific Island nations, France, China, uh, Chile and everybody individually says this is what we will voluntarily commit to and implement to reduce the causes of ocean acidification and if this continues i would not be surprised that there's some kind of organizational effort between other people that are similarly threatened to see if there's a way to take it on
0: well um i'm very proud to be a Californian right now in this circumstance and I applaud your work and the work of the governor to protect what is one of the most beautiful states not to diss any other states listening right now because we're heard in North Carolina and we're also heard in Columbus, Ohio and those are gorgeous states as well. We just happen to have one of the largest coastlines and um, fiercely want to protect it so I thank you and the governor for doing what you have done and will continue to do to protect us from awful oil spill
4: Thanks for shining a light on this.
0: Absolutely. Hope to talk to you again sometime soon. That was Natural Resources Secretary John Laird, and I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan. This is Planet Watch, and we will be keeping our eye on this and other issues for you as the weeks go by.
1: And John, just in case you're listening either now or later on the archive, thanks for giving us that interview. John got his start politically here in Santa Cruz. He was a city council member, and I helped with his very first election campaign. Um, Hey, a couple items in the remaining couple of minutes here uh, that both have to do with music. A response to all these horrifying times we're in. You know, you have to have some good music that has some real spiritual sustenance to it. And we have a local musician, Michael Levy, who's going to be Kicking off the release of his first CD this week, Thursday... January 25th at 7.30 p.m. at the Quaker Meeting House on Rooney Street over off the Morrissey exit heading east and south on the Highway 1 freeway from town here. And uh, the album is called Great Big Love. <laughs> and if I had more time, I could give you a little more of a synopsis. But hey, come to the concert <laughs> and buy his CD. Um, another one here, uh, we had a riddle last week about music. And it was from a great movie 40 years ago. And it was this little five-note ditty from Space Aliens. And just to remind you, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the answer. We actually had several people email us the answer. But here is that little ditty one more time. (laughs) That was from the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind by the now very famous director Steven Spielberg and it it had the actor um, Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus in there. (laughs) And um, anyway, there you go. So, um, well, uh, one more little thing that uh, a listener responded a long time ago. Uh, We had a riddle about uh, what are the tropics anyway? And this is an unfinished business. He replied and uh, we actually talked on the air. He called in and he was claiming that it's the zone on the earth where uh, day and night are always equal 12 hours each The sun's always up for exactly 12 hours Well, it turns out That's true only on the equator The equator is the one place on the earth Where every single day it's, The sun is up for 12 hours And the sun is down for 12 hours Elsewhere in the tropics though It's close to true, but it's not true <laughs> So that is not the defining characteristic of the tropics But as we went over then It is that the sun can be directly overhead In the tropics And everywhere in the tropics, that happens at two moments a year. The sun will be straight overhead. And it's never overhead outside the tropics like here. So we never stand on our own shadow. We never have no shadow because the sun is straight overhead. you got to go into the tropics for that. So anyway, thanks, everybody. This is Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky.
0: I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. This has been Planet Watch. We'll see you next week.